from Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. Thank you very much for joining us. We've got an interesting show today. Coming up later, we're going to get out in the garden. Spring planting season approaches. We're going to be talking with an, uh, an organization in La Crosse called GROW. They work with students to teach them about gardening and uh, all related subject matter. We're going to get some tips and tricks and find out how you can support that organization and get your own garden ready to plant by going to their annual plant sale. That's all coming up. But first, uh, let's talk about some wildlife areas uh, where you can get out and uh, and recreate a little bit now that the weather is getting nicer uh, and also uh, learn about how how wildlife in our area are, are, are protected and preserved uh, through a series of wildlife refuges that are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Joining me are two wonderful people to talk about that effort. Uh, we, have, uh, we have Hallie Schultz and Donna Schelling, who are already laughing in the background. Hallie, Donna, welcome to Newsmakers. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us. We're uh, excited to be here, Donna. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, for sure. So today we're talking, there There are three areas. We'll cover them all eventually, but just to just to lay all the cards on the table, uh, we've got the Trempolo National Wildlife Refuge, the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge, and the Driftless Area National Wildlife Refuge. And we're going to talk about all three of those, even though Driftless is in Iowa. No, I know, I know a lot of us enjoy weekends in Iowa. And so uh, that'll be fun too. So... First of all, Hallie, tell me about these these three entities are part of a really big system of these wildlife refuges that uh, Fish and Wildlife has going on all over the country. So we are part of a, a system of, of refuges, like you said. We are managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a agency under the Department of the Interior. Um, and I guess uh, one of the best ways to kind of give people some frame of references. We are like the sister ag- or sister agency to the park service. So park service manages national parks and uh, the fish and wildlife service manages national wildlife refuges. And there are over 570 of those wildlife refuges in the United States. Just a couple of them right here in your very backyards. So we're excited to be able to tell everybody about those today. That's wonderful that we have these resources available to us. So let, let's just take uh, each of these uh, refuges one at a time, and we'll just talk about kind of kind of where they are and get kind of an overview of each one. Dana, uh, Donna, I know that you uh, work primarily uh, on the on the Trempolo National Wildlife uh, Refuge side of things. Tell me about uh, the the Trempolo Refuge, and uh, obviously it's in the Trempolo area, but but more specifically, like where it is and 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 uh, what goes on there. Well, Trempolo National Wildlife Refuge is in Trempolo, Wisconsin. You can get to Trempolo National Wildlife Refuge through the River Great River State Road. We were established in 1936, and we're over 6,000 acres. The refuge is mainly managed by or for migratory birds. Um, we are in a prime location right next to the Mississippi River. So we are in the route of a lot of migratory birds. So throughout the year, you can see many different species of birds visiting us. The refuge has a lot to offer for the community from hiking trails, dikes. We have a tour loop or a wildlife drive of four miles 
that you can drive through and you can see different wildlife throughout the year. And um, you can see people recreating in different ways, birding, hiking, some fishing, wildlife observation, photography, um, inter interpretation. So it, it's, it's a very neat place. And if you are ever around, I will encourage you to stop by and check it out and enjoy the refuge. And I would I would add too that um, for those that know the area, um, it's it borders Perot State Park. Yes. So if okay. you're familiar with that with where that is, that's you're in the heading the right direction. Okay. Yeah, those so, are our neighbors. So yep. so if you if you know how to get to Perot, then then it <laughs> won't be too hard to find the Trempeleau National Wildlife Refuge. That is correct. Tell me about visiting a national wildlife refuge uh, in general. You mentioned the state park, and I have a state park pass, and I know that even if I didn't, I could stop in the office and purchase a day pass. How, what does somebody have to do to access uh, a national wildlife refuge? Well, in our case, we do not have a fee program, okay. so um, we do not charge a fee to our visitors. Uh, we do have hours that we allowed visitation. So Trumpolo is from sunrise to sunset year-round. As of right now, our office, it's still in what is the winter-spring hour. So our office is open to the public Thursday and Friday, which is a contact station, um, 8 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. We will be changing and expanding those hours in May. But you just need to have that desire of coming and enjoying the outdoors and knowing a little bit more about the refuge, like you were asking if we charge a fee, the hours of um, visitation and things like that are helpful to plan your visit. Okay. And so that applies to Trempolo. What about Upper Mississippi and Driftless? Uh, uh, Hallie, do, do people need to make arrangements to have a, a like a, a, a sticker or can they purchase a pass or or is it like Trempolo where you just show up and go? And the Driftless area doesn't actually have a ton of public use areas on it. It's kind of um, parceled out uh, smaller units that we just manage. So I think it's just focusing on the Upper Mississippi Refuge because we have, I mean, we are 260 miles long and the majority of that is, you know, on and around the river. So for for the most part, there is no, you know, there's no fee. Anybody, the, the thing is that, um, you know, anybody that's coming to the Mississippi River, that's kind of along that stretch between, you know, Wabasha, Minnesota, down to Rock Island, Illinois area is, is going to be on the Upper Miss National Wildlife and Fish Refuge. So, so one of the things that we struggle with is letting people know that they are, they are on a National Wildlife Refuge. And, and that is, uh, you know, that's the, the beautiful place that they're visiting. And the, the reason that it's it's here for us to enjoy is that it was established as that. It's definitely what we do not have a fee that we charge um, for the Upper Miss. And most National Wildlife Refuges typically don't have uh, fees that are associated with them. Some do, but, but ours in this area don't. There is, though, we do sell here at our visitor center, which is um, uh, in Onalaska on Bryce Prairie, we actually sell the, uh, national parks passes. So we sell them here for people, uh, to use at other places. 
that's interesting to know. But that's a sidetrack from from our conversation, which is yep, about the sorry. the the wildlife refuges, which don't require a pass, uh, at least in our area. Yeah, in our area. Yeah. yeah. So it's that's Tell me about the the Upper Miss. Uh, what are some of the kinds of things that people would encounter there? It sounds like it's a. I mean, it's a much much longer, narrower area than than Trempolo. So, like, what? People will go to Trempolo to do the stuff there. How, yeah. how is it that <laughs> no. how is it that most people would encounter other than just riding up and down the river? How would they encounter something that is specifically part of Upper Miss? We have a lot of you know interpretive. Uh, I guess we have interpretive signs and things like that along mm-hmm. along the river. So that we have pull-offs. We have uh, one of our you know most visited. Um, wildlife overlooks is near Brownsville, Minnesota. And that is where all of the tundra swans kind of gather. So that is a pretty hot spot, you know, in the fall where people visit. And that's where we, we provide information about an interpretive science and things like that on, on that this is a national wildlife refuge that they're looking at. And this is the habitat uh, that's being provided for the swans. And so, um, so in that sense, they're getting the message that way. And then we also have our, our, like I said, we have a visitor center here on Bryce Prairie. And um, that is a place we hope that people will come and visit and see all the cool things that the river has to offer. Um, It's pretty neat. We actually, we're open from, the visitor center here is open from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday. And we have a lot of kind of fun programs that are coming up. So um, we've got a set this Saturday, one of our Rangers is putting on a program um, called like story circle with the Ranger. And she's going to do have props and do a scavenger hunt and things like that. So, um, and then that's coming up this this Saturday, the 29th. Correct. Yep. Okay. Uh, We have bird walks that we are putting on for World Migratory Bird Day. Mm-hmm. And those will all be taking places on uh, Bryce Prairie here, uh, meeting at uh, Lytle's Landing. And that this is kind of a really neat time of year to see all the migra- migrating songbirds and other birds that are coming back. So those are uh, different evenings and one morning of the week. We have one on May 1st. We've got one on May 4th and another on May 9th. So what do people have to do to participate oh, on one of those? Um, for these, we we ask people to register just so that, you know, we don't have 50 people trying to all. Yeah. yeah. To, and and I think I, I think I probably interrupted you when you were about to give that website. Well, I was just going to say if they want to find more information, um, actually, probably our Facebook page is the best. OK, how, how do I find that? It, it, I think if you were, were just to do a search for Upper Mississippi Refuge, okay, that would probably be one of your first hits that would come up. Um, oh, this is going to be a fun one that I've kind of been looking forward to. The um, We're going to do a Bark Ranger program. Not Park Ranger, but Bark, bark, bark Ranger. Bark Ranger. So this has yeah. something to do with either dogs or trees. And I'm hoping yeah, it's dogs. No. Oh, good. <laughs> I didn't even think about trees. That's, yeah. that's clever. Um, no, definitely dogs. Okay, good. <laughs> so, um, and this will be one people probably have to register too, but 
That'll be in June. That's when we're going to first try it. But I think we're also going to start like a self-led thing where people can come in and get their bark ranger bandana and have their dogs learn how to be a good steward of the land. And they have to hold up their paw and and the it's really cute. And then um, so they they learn, you know, pick up after your pet and keep your pets on a leash and. And then, and then the expectation is when people are walking with their bark ranger, that they're being good stewards and um, passing the message along to others. Okay. So, so talk about, uh, speaking of being good stewards, um, the, the whole system exists to mm-hmm. sort of be good stewards of the wildlife around us. And so when people visit uh, uh, something like the Trempolo National Wildlife Refuge or the Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife and Fish Refuge, um, what are some of those best practices as as far as what kind of behavior is and isn't acceptable? Well, definitely, if we um, continue the conversation about pets, which they are welcome, having your pet on a leash is great, and we love to see that. Um, we like to see people enjoying the outdoors, but if you have your pet loose, um, it could be uh, maybe a problem. An example of that, it could make uncomfortable other visitors, but it could also be a threat for wildlife because they can run after birds and we want to protect the wildlife that we have in the refuge. So showing that type of behavior and having your pet on a leash will be great. But then if you're in the refuge too and you bring snacks with you, uh, we call it packeting, pack it out. So please don't leave trash behind you. That would be great too. And things like that. If you're in a hiking trail and the trail is full of people moving aside or leaving another person hiker and just opening that space and sharing that space, uh, um, it's uh, simple ways that can go long ways too. So those are three that I quickly remember Mm -hmm. because those are things that we see when we are out there. What comes to your mind, Hallie, as far as how people can be good good uh, users of the area? Honestly, the number one thing I would hope that people are doing is just respecting the other users that are out there because we do have, you know, it is everyone's resource to u- utilize. So, so I think if people are respectful of others when they're when they're out using the, the river and the resource, then that's the, you know, one of the biggest thing. And then and, resp- and, the, and in turn being respectful of wildlife. You know, so trying to remember that, that it's a place for and home for animals and plants and and that their actions and things that they do can affect that. Uh, recreation, uh, especially in Trempolo, uh, Donna mentioned uh, hiking, birding, all of those wonderful things. Uh, on on wildlife refuges, uh, uh, I'm assuming fishing is allowed uh, in in like a lot of the river locations. Are hunting and fishing allowable on other wildlife refuges, in, specifically Trempolo? Yes. So hunting and fishing, it's a wildlife dependent recreation, and it is allowed in the refuge. However, when you take a look to the map of Trempolo, you'll see that it's divided into units: the north and south unit. Um, the portion in the north area, it's a unit open to public hunting according to the state regulations and seasons. Anything in the south section of the refuge is through a special permit. And we do allow hunting 
of um, deer hunting, bow hunting, and um, firearm hunting. We also allowed a waterfowl hunting. So we have a, a disabled waterfowl hunt and um, hopefully we'll be able to offer a learn to hunt, uh, waterfowl hunt for women and, um, and trapping too. So we have a trapping auction in October that we do for local trappers. And if they get a unit, they can either trap for beaver or for muskrat through the trapping season of the state, according to the zone that we are. And I think one is zone Z and the other one is central zone. Hallie mentioned a, a series of uh, events going on on the uh, Upper Miss. Uh, what about what about Trempolo? What's going on uh, in Trempolo that, as far as specific things that people might want to participate in? Yeah, so uh, upcoming events in Trempolo are uh, for a migratory birthday that will be happening Saturday, May 13. It's an event that we do every year, like a bird festival, where we're going to have bird hikes. We're going to have a bird banding demonstration. We're going to have activities for kids and giveaways. We're going to have a presentation at the Owl Center, where one of our volunteers will be presenting uh, wild cameras that you can look throughout the river to see different wildlife. And then we're going to have the River Valley Raptors too, with a booth speaking about the different raptors they have. They're going to have live raptors. Live raptors, yes. (laughs) And then um, in the uh, Saturday, May, no, Saturday, June, correction, Saturday, June 3rd, we have the Artists in the Refuge. We're doing this for the first time. It happens to be during National Trails Day, too, and we're going to have different plein air artists in two different locations of the refuge for people to see their art and have interaction with them. And then we're going to have a get-together where they bring their art and show it to the people in the OWL Center, which stands for Outdoor Wonder Learning Center. And then another event that we have in June is an archery program for beginners. We're getting along with the Genoa Fish Hatchery with their employees. They have a um, archery equipment, and we're going to be doing that in June 24. So those are the spring, summer events. We have more coming up throughout the year, but those are the ones that are more closed, you know, in the calendar. So any more information, Facebook will be a great place to look for that, our internet page too. And yep, some of them you need to sign up too. So if you're interested in doing the bird hikes, just send us an email, check the Facebook, give us a call and we'll sign you up for a bird hike. Tell me, we've talked a lot about what people can do uh, on the uh, National Wildlife uh, Refuges. Are there specific things that come to mind that that are not allowed or that people frequently wish they could do that they just can't or? Um, the upper miss is kind of a weird one because we we actually have a lot more. We allow a lot more public use, um, I guess. Uh, um, what am I trying to say? We allow a, more, a higher variety of recreational activities than a lot of other refuges do. Um, typically camping is not something that you would find on a national wildlife refuge, but on the upper miss refuge, a lot of our islands, of course, people camp on, Mm -hmm. you know, during the summer and things like that. So, um, so I think that would be, if I was thinking of any, you know, if we're comparing ourselves to state or national parks, camping is definitely one that is not typically something that is found on wildlife refuges. So, um, except for the upper miss, (laughs) um, 
Well, and there's probably a few more, I'm sure, in the system that have it as well. But, you know, we have basically the the refuge system was established. We have six priority public uses. We have um, fishing, hunting, wildlife observation, wildlife photography, environmental education, and environmental interpretation. So if it falls outside those six things, then we have to do compatibility, compatibility to determine if it's um, something that is compatible with the wildlife and the wildlife conservation of that refuge. I don't know if uh, if Hallie was just giving you grief, Donna, but when we when we, when I started asking about things people are not allowed to do, it seems like something came to your mind. What was it that came to your mind, Donna, when when we were first started talking about what people are and aren't allowed to do uh, on the wildlife refuge? Um, flying drones. Okay. The use of a drone. Yeah. In, in wildlife area. Yeah, I'll, I think it's a it's DOI lands actually. I don't think it's just refuges, but okay. And would that policy. would that apply to just recreational use, or does that include people who are FAA licensed drone pilots? It includes everyone, okay. pretty much. I mean, you need a permit. Sure. Okay. So let me ask before we before we go. Let me let me just ask this: Are there specific uh, goals or specific wildlife that each one exists to protect, or is it just this is an area that we're leaving as much as possible in its national natural state, so that whatever wildlife chooses to exist there can? Yeah. So we manage, you know, we manage for the wildlife in that we try to um, manage the invasive species that might be coming in. Um, we monitor and we do different kinds of monitoring. Um, you know, like we do forest inventory, um, we monitor different bird species and their populations, and then manage accordingly, providing, you know, trying to provide the appropriate habitat for for those things. Um, you know, one of the reasons we have so many regulations on the Upper Mississippi River is to provide that protection and actively manage for the wildlife. We have a lot of islands and we've got a lot of backwaters that are really sensitive and can be really sensitive nesting habitat for different bird species. And one of the reasons we have so many slow no wake areas is that <clears throat> that water sloshing up, you know, onto those sensitive areas can can wreak havoc on, you know, different kinds of nesting birds. So we we definitely manage in our in our regulations, but also in on the ground field field work that you know our biologists and stuff like that do. Hallie Schulz and Donna Schelling are here with me today. Thank you both very much for joining me. Yes, thank you so much for for having us. And if you have time, I have one last plug. Always <laughs> plug it, plug it. Okay. Um. So the Upper Miss Refuge is. We are celebrating 100 years in 2024. So next year, we're going to have a lot of we're going to have a lot of outdoor recreational opportunities and celebrations. Well, we, we will keep will, our eyes peeled. Yes, keep your eyes peeled. Yeah, 100th uh, anniversary coming up in 24. And I want you know just like to point out that this is your national wildlife refuge. Yeah. Right, Donna, this is your public land. Yep. This is your place to enjoy. This is the the public owns it. So so go out and use it and enjoy it. Well, that's a good reminder and a and a perfect note to end our conversation. 
Hallie, Donna, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. We appreciate it. You're listening to Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or any of our other previous uh, shows, you can find them all online, wpr.org slash newsmakers. That's wpr.org slash newsmakers. Coming up after this timeout, we're going to find out about GROW, which is an organization in La Crosse uh, that helps teach people about the garden and how to grow one and how to use it. That's all coming up next on Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. From Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Newsmakers. I'm Ezra Wall in La Crosse. Thanks for joining us for uh, a conversation today with Grow La Crosse. We're going to find out about the organization and we're going to get some tips and tricks for what we should be doing uh, in our neighborhoods as planting season is nearly upon us. And we'll find out about uh, where where you can pick up some stuff for the yard if you're still uh, playing with ideas and and uh, looking for an opportunity to uh, plant something new. First, let me welcome our guests to this segment. We're talking to Bonnie Martin, who's the Director of Communications and Outreach with Grow Lacrosse, and Sam Peterson, the Operations Manager for that same organization. Bonnie and Sam, thank you very much for being with us today on Newsmakers. Yes, thank yeah. you. Thanks thank for you having too. us. Yeah. So I, I want to find out about Grow Lacrosse first. Uh, Bonnie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the organization is and, and what you do in our community? Sounds good. Well, GROW is a nonprofit. Uh, We are organized to connect youth to healthy food and nature. So we do that through school garden programs, um, experiences for students in our greenhouses and on a farm. Um, So we really, our goal is to have students have opportunities to have hands-on learning, uh, seed-to-table education so that they can know where their food comes from and help empower them to make healthy choices in their own lives. How often do you find as you're interacting with the kids that uh, they they know what apples are, but they don't they don't really have a super specific concept about about where they come from or not just apples, but grown things in general? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable when you start talking to kids to learn uh, how many of them really don't know where their food comes from, other than maybe the grocery store or the convenience store. Um, A lot of them haven't in their own personal lives had opportunities to really grow their food or see um, really that whole process from seed to table. So we know research shows that when kids have opportunities to have that hands-on engagement in the process, they are just a lot more likely to be willing to try healthy foods and to incorporate them into their diets when they um, can be a part of planting and tending, growing, harvesting, and even uh, preparing those foods. Sam, you you work with kids in in schools, as I understand. There there are like some school based gardens and some other stuff that that you work on. Talk about uh, some of the ways that Grow is uh, interacting directly with students in the area. Yeah, so um, we're doing this spring. We're doing lessons in the gardens, and there's a series of three lessons. Um, each lesson kind of covers a different topic. We're talking about soil. We're talking about um, how plants um, photosynthesize. Um, we're talking about different parts of the plants, uh, a whole range of topics. Um, and then we um, resume in the fall with 
uh, fall garden lessons and um, there we kind of cover some different stuff in the fall um, and then in the in the summertime between um, when kids are on summer vacation we have open gardens so families are able to come in um, to the gardens on Tuesdays and um, we usually have activities planned for the whole family um, and it's all based around learning about gardening and plants. And how many locations do you have where you have those open gardens? We have um, seven different gardens in the community that we that we're working with um, schools in those spaces. Um, and this summer we'll also be partnering with Kane Street Gardens for some of our open gardens on Thursdays. We'll be um, partnering with them to be able to provide some educational opportunities for folks coming there to um, engage in their harvests as well. How much experience would somebody need to show up an, at an event like that? Is it is it meant to be like a volunteer opportunity where you have to show up and be uh, immediately impactful? Or is it a learning opportunity where people can show up with, <laughs> let's say, my very limited knowledge and uh, and learn something? Yeah, the open gardens are really an opportunity for for community members and families just to come out and explore the garden. So no prior knowledge is necessary. The goal is to provide chance um, to just explore the gardens, uh, harvest anything that's ready to be eaten and take that home with you. Um, There's always a structured learning activity that goes along with each of those events. So um, so really it's for just anyone, any any background knowledge level um, is welcome. I'm interested um, if if you if you'll indulge me a little bit. I just want to uh, uh, speak on behalf of all of the all of the brown thumbs out there, uh, and and see if if you can help point point me in the right direction and maybe tell me uh, what what I may or may not be doing wrong. So for somebody who's kind of just getting started. Um, it's almost the time of year to, to plant. Like right now we're kind of in the, in the last week of April. Is this too early to plant in, in our region? How many more weeks do we have to wait to be pretty sure that we're doing it right? Um, yeah, I would, I would say wait a little while longer, um, until the threat of frost is pretty much over. Um, especially if you're wanting to plant like tomatoes, peppers, um, basil, eggplant, all that stuff doesn't like uh, to be cold. Um, Things in the brassica family, you could maybe plant a little earlier. Um, So broccoli, kale, uh, Brussels sprouts, uh, plants that are a little more um, tolerant to cold, you could maybe do, you know, um, in the next few weeks here. But otherwise, I would wait until... I think about mid-May is our last frost, expected frost date. Okay. So is that pretty common from year to year? I mean, are we talking about like basically, like if we were going to think of a benchmark, if are we thinking of like, you know, the week after Mother's Day or something like that? Yeah, I think that's um, usually what it's projected at is like a, just right around that time. Are there plants that are uh, particularly well suited for beginners to try out, either either vegetables or flowers? Or I mean, everybody likes to grow pretty flowers, right? It, it depends upon you know different things like the quality of your soil and like what type of soil you are planting in. But I have had good luck with things like um, kale, 
Uh, that seems to be pretty hard to kill. Um, <laughs> that should come right on the label, shouldn't it? Hard to kill. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think like if you wait, um, in, tomato plants are uh, pretty easy um, and they're usually a, a favorite. Um, there is some maintenance that goes along with them. Um, they will just kind of sprawl and grow out of control. So you have to do some pruning with them. Um, and, but yeah, I think, you know, just like, as long as you're paying attention to your, uh, plants and making sure they're not, uh, drying out, making sure they're getting enough water, I think they'll do okay. When I go to the, uh, the, to the store and I go to, you know, the section where they have, uh, you know, plants and garden, things like that. And I'm usually like, I, I'm not a specialist. I'm talking about like box stores and hardware stores and stuff like that. So like th th I see like seeds, then I see little bitty versions of the plants. And then for a few dollars more, I see much more mature versions of the plants, uh, in, in particular tomatoes, you can get a tomato plant that almost has little tiny tomatoes on it uh, and just stick it in the ground. Is, is there one that is preferable, uh, over, over the others, or, uh, is there one that's better for people who are less, less familiar with gardening and just getting into it? So you're talking about, uh, like transplanting. So yeah. oftentimes with like tomatoes, um, you'll have starts, and um, those can those are started, you know, earlier, like late winter, and um, then be transplanted after that last frost date. And yeah, I think that's a good way to go. Um, it's um, you'll get tomatoes sooner that way than if you were to try to start them from seed in your mm -hmm. garden. Yeah, I would recommend. I mean, not everything can be transplanted um, easily. Some things you do want to just start from seed things with more sensitive root systems. Um, what kind of uh, things would those be? Like, can you think of a couple of examples of things that you really pretty much should start from, from seed and not try to transplant? Yeah. Um, carrots often, I mean, you couldn't really transplant a carrot easily, like radishes, um, more kind of like those root vegetables. Um, and then like a lot of times beans and peas, they don't transplant very easily. Uh, things like that. What about um, the the different mediums for gardening? I don't know if I'm using the right term, but like planting directly into the ground versus planting into like a raised bed or planting into a container. What are uh, what are the different approaches that people have to be aware of when they're using different locations like that? Yeah, um, like I guess it's um, kind of depends upon what sort of space you have. So, you know, if you have a whole yard, um, you could, you know, just have a garden directly, you know, in your in your lawn and plant directly into the ground. Uh, if you're living in like an apartment situation, you might have um, more of like a, um, a box filled with soil. Um, and either way works. Um, you know, it's just, you might want to pay attention to the quality of your soil. So if you're um, planting in like a planter, you might want to get um, some like potting mix or um, use some sort of compost. And that goes this, uh, that's the same for like a garden in your lawn. Uh, a lot of times it's good to uh, maybe do a soil test 
um, and amend your soil um, accordingly. Um, and if you uh, start with healthy soil, um, your plants will do a lot better. That's Sam Peterson. He's the operations manager at Grow. And uh, the website is growlacrosse.org, and uh, you can find more information about this uh, organization, all the different educational products, uh, projects that they're involved in and everything. Uh, Bonnie Martin is the Director of Communications and Outreach with Grow. She's with us as well. And Bonnie, I, you've got a plant sale coming up, and that's, a, that's an event that people really look forward to, and it's this coming week. Tell me a little bit about what goes on at the plant sale. Yeah, our plant sale is one of our bigger fundraisers of the year. Um, so it serves a couple of different purposes and one being raising funds uh, to help support the programming, uh, the garden lessons, field trips, and all the different things that we offer to families and youth in the community. Um, but it's also a great way for people to get ready for the growing season. So um, we, Sam and our interns have been working hard over months to grow plants, um, a variety of different types of plants for the sale. So we will have um, herbs, flowering plants, um, produce, a great variety of different things um, for people to get their gardens started. And the event will be on May, Friday, May 5th from 10 to 6, Saturday the 6th from 9 to 3, and the 7th from 10 until 1. And um, it all takes place at our greenhouse on Western Technical College campus. Um, so we we would love to see a lot of members of the community come out and um, get started with their growing and also support our programming. So the plants that you're selling at the plant sale are things that have been cultivated by, by grow, like in your own facilities? Yep. So we've um, started everything pretty much from seed. We started in like January or February with some slow growing stuff and we've been um, planting up till the last couple weeks. Um, and um, it'll be stuff that you can transplant into your garden. Uh, what what kinds of uh, some of the same things we've been talking about or is it mostly like herbs and vegetables or is it flowers or is it like annuals or perennials or what what are we talking about here flowers herbs and um veggies i guess um okay so yeah uh, some different varieties of flowers um we've got like coleus cosmos marigold um and then um, some different herbs, a lot of sage, some, you know, oregano, rosemary, lavender, um, and then a bunch of different veggies. Um, we've got tons of tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, um, uh, kale, cabbage, um, Brussels sprouts. I'm, I know I'm missing some stuff, but so we... tried and true stuff that grows pretty well in this area. Uh, yeah, yep. It'll yeah. all I think, transplant pretty easily into the garden. And we've got about 3,000 plants, so okay. there, there's plenty to choose from. And so the, the sale is on next uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, Bonnie, where do people have to, uh, where, where can people go for the plant sale? Where is it? Yeah, we are located right on Western Technical College campus, um, the Horticulture Education Center. So the address is 624 Vine Street. We talked about some of the things that people can plant and 
with the caveat that really the best time to plant is coming more mid-May, past that last threat of frost. Uh, we're talking about spring planting. Like, are there things that people should avoid planting at this time of the year? Yeah, um, you can definitely do some succession planting. Um, so I would say, um, you know, you could start everything now, but then you could do another round of um, the same thing later in the season. Um, so like a lot of cool weather stuff, like the brassicas, kale, cabbage, um, you know, Brussels sprouts, that um, could be planted again in the fall and it'll um, withstand some cooler temperatures. Um, so like the first frost or two won't kill it. Um, and some people say it actually makes the um, produce taste better. Um, so yeah, I would recommend um, maybe thinking about like doing some succession planting, especially if there's something you really like. Um, something like things like tomatoes and peppers, um, they um, are usually just put in the ground, um, you know, mid-May, and then they take quite a while to produce fruit. So that's just something you would only plant once probably. Um, but there are a bunch of uh, things like lettuce um, and things that just grow quicker that you could definitely um, plant again uh, as the temperatures kind of get cooler towards the end of summer and fall. And plant sort of on a recurring basis. And you called that, there was a name for it, and you called it what, succession planting? Yep. Oh, cool. I learned another new thing. Yay. Um, so, uh, so uh, we're talking to Sam Peterson and Bonnie Martin from Grow, and um, I, I'm very pleased for their time today. I, I want to talk about a concern that a lot of people uh, uh, share, which is the the decision, not so much in vegetables and things like that, but the decision whether to plant uh, native species versus non-native species. How do you how do you how do you even tell, and and how important is is that really some people think of any non-native species as being invasive and i know that's not always entirely the case or i gather that that's not always entirely the case but what what goes into that decision making process for people yeah i can't say i know a lot about um planting natives vegetables and herbs um i i don't know that they are i don't know that you can really avoid planting stuff that um, so that's not that's not so much a concern when you're talking about like gardening, which is mostly what we've been talking about. That's not a huge concern when you're talking about the broader areas of horticulture, where you're talking about ornamental things that might last from year to year to year. That might yeah. be more of a concern in in that environment. Yeah, I would say I've heard the the conversation around native plants a bit more centered around um, like your prairie grasses and pollinators. Um, plants that kind of fall more into that category of maybe or ornamental, as you mentioned. Um, actually, for one of our um, sessions of garden lessons for students, we focus on cultural connections. And one of the really neat things about gardening your own produce is that a lot of families and cultures pass seeds down from generation to generation. And so um, whether it's, um, you know, a Hmong family that has brought seeds uh, from Laos, or if it's a native 
um, family who, you know, is growing things that have been native to this region for thousands of years, um, those connections can be really strong connections to our food and our heritage. So I think um, it's probably kind of two separate conversations when we're talking about native grasslands and uh, pollinator plants and then versus um, our food sources. Some of the, uh, you you mentioned again, some of the work that you're doing with uh, students in the schools. And I would imagine if if kids are in the schools where you are active, they would automatically uh, find out about uh, those kinds of resources. But if parents are interested, where can they learn more about how to become involved with your educational programs? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we have a pretty active social media on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so if people are looking for opportunities, you know, to get involved with volunteering in the gardens or attending open gardens or participating in our kids cooking challenge events, those are a great way to stay current and um, things that are happening. We also have an e-newsletter that people can subscribe to on our website. Um, and our website is another good resource. Um, there are resource pages and recipes from um, foods that we do taste tests with our students out in the gardens. Um, so many of those resources can be found right on our webpage as well. And what's that? Uh, www.growlacrosse.org. Perfect. I, I want to put you on the spot a little bit and, and we'll start with Bonnie and then we'll get to Sam. I, I want to know, like, what was what's the first thing that you remember planting and growing or trying to grow, as would definitely be the case with me? Well, I remember actually from my childhood, my father was an avid gardener. And um, I remember when we lived uh, right in town in a small piece of land, we had a little garden in the backyard and the neighborhood kids and my sister and I all um, digging through the garden to try fresh spinach. Um, and we thought that that was pretty amazing that we could just uh, go right out to the backyard and grab a snack there. So I think that's my first gardening memory. Okay. Fresh spinach. Not, yep. That's not what you would expect uh, every kid to get excited about. But I guess you were talking about that's part of the advantage of getting uh, kids exposed to this material is that they they see the kind of quote-unquote gross foods in a, in a little bit different light. Yep. I can almost guarantee that at that same stage in my life, if my mom had put a, a bowl of green leaves on the table, I probably would have said no thanks. Um, but when I could really get right out there and get in the garden and be a part of picking it. Um, again, it was like entertainment for the was, neighborhood kids. <laughs> yeah. It was exciting. Yeah. Yep. Sam, Sam, what about you? What, what do you uh, remember in those early uh, years of gardening? Um, I, I think the sun gold tomato is probably like what made me uh, appreciate vegetables more. Um, it's basically like candy um, <laughs> on a, plant um super sweet and fun to just like pick right off the plant in the garden and just you know eat right there are sun gold tomatoes uh larger or smaller how is it is it like a cherry tomato sized thing or the cherry tomato so okay little, yep and are, what the 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 uh the name would indicate that they are gold colored is that is that accurate or am I just assuming something? Yeah, they're yellowish gold. Yep. Oh, and cool. Really and really mm -hmm. sweet and they taste like candy, says Sam. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Wonderful. Well, uh, I can't uh, I, I can't thank you enough for being here today and, and talking to us, uh, giving us some tips and tricks for getting out in the garden. Particularly, we've geared a lot of this conversation toward people who might be exploring that for kind of the first time. Uh, and and I appreciate that information. And uh, and hopefully we get a lot of traffic at the at the plant sale coming up next weekend. Yes, we would love that. Thank you very much, Bonnie and Sam from uh, from Grow. The website is growlacrosse.org. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you thank for you. having us. This is Newsmakers from Wisconsin Public Radio. There are a couple of opportunities each week to hear our program. We're on Friday morning at 10 on the Ideas Network 90.3. We repeat Friday night at 7 on NPR News and Music 88.9. And we're always online at wpr.org slash newsmakers. Thanks to Kate Spranger, who produces our show. I'm Ezra Wall. Join us next time for another Newsmakers here on Wisconsin Public Radio.